Welcome everybody to The Pestle. I am Wes and today we are doing things a little differently than normal. Instead of a normal episode covering a film or a TV show, we're actually going to pull some bonus content from our Patreon. So if you're a subscriber, you may have already heard this, um, but if not, then, and you want to hear some of these other bonus episodes, you can uh, go check out our Patreon, subscribe, it's like two bucks a a month, um, which I know is very expensive, Um, but we'd appreciate it, and you know what, and if you don't, all good too. And so we are starting the next three weeks of bonus content, this first episode being an interview uh, between myself and Kevin and Faulkner. He is an author of the science fiction novel, The Sixth Traveler. It's available on Amazon, and you will find links in the show notes. Um, I really enjoyed it. We tried to keep it. We rode the line of not spoiling too much while also being able to get into some of the specifics of his work. Uh, I think you, if you enjoy kind of the creative process, especially for someone who's tackling his very first novel, and and he doesn't have a background in writing novels, right? He has a background um, as a lawyer, a patent attorney, uh, among other things, which we will get into in the interview. Um, and so we'll, we're going to talk about a lot of things. Um, what does the process of working with an editor look like? How do you handle feedback and decide what to use and what to ignore? What good feedback even looks like for him? Uh, we'll discuss some of his, some of his writing habits. Um, how does he define a draft? Uh, we'll also look at some of the character naming conventions and some of the things he had to wrestle with there, um, how his sci-fi universe reflects reality, the possibilities of interstellar travel in the future, advice for first-time writers, and other such stuff and things and stuff. Um, without further ado, here's the interview with Kevin M. Faulkner. This will be pretty high-level stuff. We'll get into a little bit of the novels in specific, but for me, it's just kind of fun talking to another writer, especially someone who does something so radically different from my own kind of writing, right? Uh, screenplay versus novels are wildly different animals. Um, sure. Which I don't know how much you know about uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Or Scott oh, yeah. yeah. And so he struggled for years, you know, trying to write a screenplay. Meanwhile, had already written Gatsby, you know, one of the great American novels. Um, right. And so, yeah, I have a lot of respect for what you do, and it's not what I do. And, for me, one of the nice things about reading like your work or novels in general is it's escapism. Whereas, yeah, you know, most people go and watch a movie to escape, but for me, I can't help but I'm studying it. I'm I'm trying to learn um, whether it's the lighting or the writing. But for a novel, it's not at all what I do, and so I get to just kind of unwind my my brain. But yeah, for my Patreon podcast uh, subscribers, we are joined right now with Kevin Faulkner. Uh, he's an author, and I'm sure a bunch of other things. We're going to talk about his writing, career, path, habits, uh, his <laughs> book that he just wrote um, that I that I read, um, and all kinds of things. And so, Kevin, I really appreciate you hanging out for a bit. Sure. And so, what is your background? What do you do for a living? I have my education is is mostly chemistry. Started out chemistry. I have a bachelor's and a PhD in chemistry, and uh, I'm from the state of North Carolina, and that is where I mostly went to school. I went to undergrad at UNC Wilmington and to graduate school at Duke University, and then met my wife, not not at Duke. She was actually at UNC while I was at, at Duke, and, and she's a chemist also, and I followed her to Texas. And then after coming to Texas and moving here for a while uh, and living here for a while, I went to law school and uh, became a patent attorney. And after so after law school in Fort Worth, uh, actually, I went to 
the predecessor, it's now Texas A&M School of Law, but when I went at the time, it was Texas Wesley, and Texas Wesley was bought out by Texas A&M in 2013, and so I'm now kind of an A&M alumni, <laughs> sort, of, sort of by adoption, but, but when I was there, it was not Texas A&M, but uh, it's still in the same place, but I worked at a law firm there in Fort Worth for a while as a, as a patent attorney, and uh, and when you go into patent law, it's very specialized. I mean, law patent law in itself is highly specialized, but even within patent law, you, you typically, a patent attorney will tend to work on things that you're technically capable of working on. And in fact, in order to even qualify to take the patent bar exam, uh, you have to have a, at least an undergraduate degree in some sort of engineering or science. And, and mine was in chemistry. And so when I practiced uh, patent law, I did a lot of chemical related patent work and and that's how I started. I did I did some basic mechanical stuff too and and even towards the end I did a lot of mechanical things and I think every patent attorney it cuts their teeth on at least simple mechanical things but but you know I specialized in in chemical type of patent work and I, and I, so anyway I worked in a law firm for a couple of years until I uh, found a job in the oil and gas industry down here in Houston. So I was in Fort, the Fort Worth area at the time mm. and my wife was actually a professor at a Texas Woman's University, which is up in Denton. So we moved down here and uh, I, I started working at ExxonMobil and worked in-house there for 20 years and uh, as a patent attorney and, and as the general attorney, too. So I did patent law, but, you know, I did a lot of other general law contract work, you know, licensing work, different different times of, of legal work and intellectual property in general, really it's just patent strategy, intellectual property strategy type of work. And I did that for 20 or so years and just retired a few months ago. And right now, and just in retirement, I, I, I may look for some work. I'll probably look for some work here eventually. I'm not in any big rush, but uh, right now, just enjoying retirement. A lot of folks, frankly, are retiring from <clears throat> ExxonMobil right now. And you know, they're going through, a, I think, a downsizing, definitely. But anyway, I, so right now I'm, I'm retired is, is where I'm at. How long have you been writing? Is that something that started as a child or is it something you developed in college? It, it did. It, I, it started really as a child, even when I was very young, just writing little short stories. And, and, and I was pretty focused on science fiction, even from a young age, too. And I, I will mention that I got I got early on I got some um, encouragement. Now nobody else in my family is interested in, in science fiction, but somehow or another, a family friend, someone who knew my an adult, you know, who knew my parents, kind of took me under their wing. Uh, some about science fiction and introduced me to some things. And in fact, I thought I would pull it out. He gave me it's this guy named Bob. He gave me. Uh, this book, which is one of the few things I've kept from my childhood. I was just like 10 years old when he gave me this, but this is a probably a 1970, 71 edition of Dune and one of the first big novels I'd ever uh, read. And, and on top of that, so I was living in Greensboro, North Carolina at the time. It just so happens that Gene Roddenberry came to the Greensboro Coliseum and he took me as a child to go see Gene Roddenberry. And so Gene Roddenberry, of course, he, he he took some time to speak to the audience, and 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 also they showed the pilot episode of Star Trek, and uh, 
And at the time, this was like the, the mid, I guess it was the mid seventies. And, and the, the reruns of Star Trek were very popular and, mm-hmm. and they were very inspiring to me. And I loved them and loved the books. I read the Star Trek novels, really got into that, really enjoyed all the whole Star Trek world. And, and then of course, Star Wars came out when I was a little older and I, I was a young boy, just 13 years old, I think when the uh, first Star Wars movie came out. And that was to put it mildly, kind of life-changing, especially for somebody, you know, me like me into science fiction as it was. And so anyway, there were some early things there that on top of my interest in writing, uh, it really inspired my uh, curiosity in science fiction writing between Dune, you know, reading this. And, and I'll tell you the truth, when I first read this, I mean, I was just 10, 10 to 11 years old. I, I really didn't even fully appreciated. It's kind of a high level. This is a pretty mature novel, really. Mm. In fact, looking back on it, I'm thinking, I don't even know if it's appropriate for a 10 year old, but it's a, <laughs> but it's a, it's a pretty high level science fiction and um, a lot of mature themes, frankly, in the book. And, but nonetheless, I, I the, though I got really got into science fiction, but I didn't really write seriously for a long time. But what happened was, is that the Texas bar journal, being, being, you know, serving the legal community, a lot of attorneys enjoy writing. There's a lot of famous attorneys, in fact, who are famous authors, and they they held a short story contest once a year, and so I started to enter it about uh, what's been five or six or seven years ago that I started entering it, and the first stories I wrote for them, they weren't science fiction. In fact, out of the six or seven stories that I entered into the contest, only only one was science fiction, which is the one that matured into the novel that I've now published. But initially, it was just little, little short stories, fictional short stories that I wrote. And, and then the only rules were of the of the short story contest were that the, the, the word count could couldn't be any more than 2000 words, which, which is a very short, short story, mm-hmm. it had to be fictional, and there had to be some element of legal law, the law and, and law work. And so with those, with that as a backdrop, I wrote some different kinds of uh, fictional work. But the third or fourth story that I wrote was the short story that this novel matured from and went through a lot of iterations. And I, I started it really, I, I submitted that short story in about 2017, but then decided to pick it up and expand on it around 2018, maybe. And my initially... My goal was really just to, to write a longer, short story, basically something more in the ten in the ten thousand to fifteen thousand word mm. length. And I was going to submit it to uh, just some sort of a journal, an, an online magazine or journal for publication. And but it, it just kept growing. I got some real editorial help for the first time. I actually, you know, went went online and found some uh, professional editors and and got some guidance and help and it just gradually grew into to what it uh, ended up publishing into yeah so i can't remember if song told me this or um or if, if i read it as part of you know your your acknowledgments but you are part of a writing group and so i'm curious how did you get plugged into it how did it form well how no did you meet? No, I'm I, I, I'm not part of a writing group. I okay. hired I hired some uh, editor, an editor who was part of a writing group. Um, I mean, a, an editor group, and they, they I found them online and called them and talked to them. They were part of a professional editing group, and you contact them individually and 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 hire them, and and that that's how I got hooked into that. I mean, but I'm not really part of that group. 
so what does that process look like? Do you, are you sending them your manuscript and they're giving you notes about pacing, story ideas uh, on a practical yeah. level? What, what's that relationship kind of look like on a week-to-week basis? So um, I contacted them. I would contact an individual. So on the way that this group work, I think it's the independent editors group. I mean, they have in, individual editors that you, you can read a little bit of blurb about them and what they kind of specialize in. Frankly, as an aside, it's, it's actually difficult to find someone who specializes in science fiction. In fact, a lot of people, when I would talk to them, they would even say, I don't do science fiction. They'll do just about anything else but <laughs> science fiction. It was, it was interesting. The whole process, I mean, when I, when I first started this, I mean, it's the whole thing has been a quite a, a learning experience, but I think a lot of people, a lot of writers and editors are, are intimidated by science fiction. Mm. And frankly, I, the, <laughs> it's the funny thing in the legal world. It's, it's almost, uh, there's a parallel. My, my, my uh, experience in the legal world is that lawyers are intimidated by patent lawyers. And it's because I mean, I think a lot of people are intimidated by science and engineering. And and likewise, if you're into science fiction, there's a lot of at least fictional, you know, science and engineering. And people are intent. People that aren't aren't knowledgeable or interested at all in science or engineering or I think are intimidated by that. I mean, that's my read of of why it is the way it is. But um, but I did find I found one editor initially that gave me some real sort of broad guidance about you know writing a novel finding your character finding an arc for that character some very broad guidance but he he kind of fell to the wayside he wasn't really interested in in getting I think he was just busy with other things but he he recommended another editor that I found and I acknowledged her her name is Sally Artesaros and so I talked to her on the phone some and so what we did is exchanged we I I would just draft uh, you know um, manuscripts and then send them to her. I believe I actually sent hard copies to her. She preferred that. So I would send a hard copy to her so that she could mark it up. She would literally mark it up and send it back in the, in the type of editing. And she even told me, she warned me that the type of editing she was going to do was going to be more what I would call first and second degree editing. I mean, just grammar, verb tense type of things, you know, mm. some, some broader things, you know, taking care of issues where, you know, I'm assuming the reader knows something, but they don't. And I need to explain it a little better. That was something early on that I found one of the biggest challenges is that when I in the writing process, when I'm writing, I mean, obviously, I know what's in my head and I know what I want the story to be and, and how what I want the characters to say and do. But the reader, of course, doesn't. And I have to uh-huh. tell them. And and sometimes I think as a writer, you can you can assume too much or just forget that the reader doesn't know certain things. And and it's it, it was invaluable to have a, a someone outside of me, an editor looking at it and, and saying, hey, Kevin, the reader is not going to know this. So, you know, you're going to have to explain this a little more, that a little more. Although I didn't. I didn't take all of her advice. There were some things in particular that I disagreed with on her. But uh, for the most part, of course, I took, you know, her advice. And so that's that's interesting because that's one of the, the crucial points. I don't know if you've ever seen Million Dollar Baby. Uh, it's about a boxer. Right. And yeah, uh, this woman who really is just passionate about it. And she goes to Clint Eastwood. And um, but at a certain point towards the beginning of the film, you're hearing this internal monologue from Morgan Freeman as 
uh, you know, he's writing this letter and he's talking about the importance of training a boxer. And he's like, you're, you're doing your best to reshape and remold them. But the problem is you, you don't actually want them to do everything that you say, because if you do that, they're no longer really a boxer. They need to have some kind of fight left in them. And as a writer, <laughs> you know, creators, we have to toe this line of we're, we're putting ourselves out there. Like I just finished writing my first feature script and going through this feedback process of uh, getting people that you trust or sometimes just anybody <laughs> to, to sit and, you know, read your work uh, long enough to form a thought. And you're going to hear people give you thoughts and ideas. And it's, it's such a tricky jo job of, what do I take from this and what do I reject? Like what, and sometimes it's a, it's a bit of a mix of the two of, cause I do a lot of client work where I'm writing scripts for clients and they might come and say, Hey, I want you to, to change the story and it, it should be this. And you have to kind of step back and say, okay, why are they suggesting this? Is there another problem that they're trying to address that they just can't put their finger on and it yeah. takes place 10 minutes before that ever happens. And, uh, so it becomes this very tricky game of I need to assess the assessor uh, in order to determine whether or not, yeah. you know, this makes sense. And so I'm curious, where did you kind of find that line? What were maybe even some of those topics? Uh, what's that process look like for you whenever you're trying to evaluate? A good question. I mean, I, I think I had when 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 I started to feel like I needed to push back on the editor, I what was really going on was that she was she was trying to tell she was trying to I felt like she was taking me away from the story I wanted to tell which really then forces me to really think what what am I trying to say here in this story what what is my message what is the arc that I want I mean there needs to be an arc but mm -hmm. I need to decide what that arc is not someone else and and there were some times when I had to really resist changing things because oh it needs to have more action or it needs to have more of this or more of that but I had to really kind of dig in and, and decide, well, what am I trying to say? And what am I just trying to please a certain audience or, or am I trying to tell a particular story regardless of, of what the audience ends up being? And, 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 you know, I, I acknowledged my daughter's song in this regard, but it, it was really true at a young age. She kind of helped me with a little bit of that. She was just like, well, dad, you, you need to tell the story you want to tell and then let the audience come to it. I mean, don't, don't just think about, I have to do this in order to please this audience. I mean, I, I, and, and I think that would have been a mistake for me. I had a story that I wanted to tell and I, and I had to figure out how I wanted to tell it. And so, you know, in that regard, I, I kind of put, would push back on, on the editing, but there were certainly other editorial suggestions that I really took. And in fact, later on, another editor that I uh, acknowledge, which was probably the best editor I had, a, a woman, young woman named Erin Davis, she really took what was really a short story and a little bit rough. She took it, she really built it into the novel. She helped me build it into the novel that she's in. And I will say one of the, the gifts that she had as an editor was that she was able to tell me what I needed to do, but without being specific. Mm. I mean, for instance, she would say, you know, Kevin, your, your characters are too perfect. You know, everyone has flaws, human nature, people have flaws. You need to think about writing in flaws or you need to add some detail here. Details are interesting, but she left it up to me, you know, to do that. But she was able to give me advice in a way that left, left 
the real decision making up to me as to what the story was. She didn't tell me what the story needed to be. She was just telling me, giving me advice on how to how to flesh it out. And in that regard, she actually helped Aaron helped me probably the most of any of the editors I worked with. And she was not with the independent editors group, by the way, she was uh, more, um, she worked just on her own. And, uh, you know, I paid her, of, of course, on the side of she was a little bit more of a, of a doing it as a side job for her. But she's she's an English literature major and has written mm-hmm. some herself, written a novel herself. But she she's actually was quite gifted in editing and uh, did a great job with it. That's tricky. What kind of so I feel like everyone has their own method of taking critique and like handling it. Are you a <laughs> I guess two parts of this is do you prefer it to be like emailed or handwritten or do you want to have a conversation about it? And then um, do you like more brutal like honesty or yeah. just like uh, let me know the high level and save the the brutality? <laughs> Yeah, you know, I like writing because, and I like both. So I like writing, especially if it's just grammar and things, because I can, mm. I'm a very visual person, but, but I do like to discuss things too, especially the higher level issues I, I, I like to discuss. But I'll tell you what, and this is something early on in the process when I decided to write this short story, which ended up being a novel, I, I really made the decision not to be, not to be, uh, thin-skinned mm-hmm. and I and I told myself not to be thin-skinned because I frankly I tend to be I'm a little bit of a sensitive person by nature but I told myself that this is a learning process and I'm not going to learn uh if if I'm too thin-skinned and uh I, and I've tried as best I could to be open to whatever and and so sometimes sometimes editors were were kind of harsh and, and, and people who read early drafts. And I've had a couple of people read early drafts and say they didn't like it. And they, they had specific problems with it. And it's always a little bit hurtful, but I took it in and I don't take offense at it. I mean, I, I it's, it's growth because uh, first of all, not everybody's going to like, you know, my writing anyway, some to a certain degree, it's subjective, but even so I still learn from it. And, and I really made an effort to, to learn in that regard. And be open to whatever method that the editor has or, or the reader has to to give me feedback. Such a, yeah, it's just so tricky because on the one hand, you know, you always want to hear good things about your work, but on the other hand, I'm always leery of hearing good things because you don't. <laughs> you can always trust a negative opinion there because no one, yeah. I think, goes out of their way just just to be mean. Um, and so I'm like, okay, this is an honest thought. But whenever you hear positive things, sometimes I'm like, okay. Is this kindness or is this like how they really feel um, about, you know, what they just uh, digested? Uh, No, I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So what does your writing habits look like? You know, do you write every day? Are you kind of the Stephen King personality where it's like, oh, from 10 to noon, you know, I I write or is it more of you come up with a a writing plan for the week or uh, are you much more loose with it? It's very, I was very loose with it. Um, it, it came in spurts. Uh, so once I made the decision to, to expand my very short story, 2000 word short story into a 10,000 word short story, it, it went very quickly. That part went very quickly, but it wasn't planned. I mean, I mostly would work in the evenings after work 
you know, a, a glass of wine while I compose and a couple of cup of, of coffee the next day when I'm editing and, and probably twice as much editing as writing. But over time, after some evenings and on weekends, especially, just would build on it. it but it wasn't very planned. It was um, almost just when I felt inspired. But, but my inspiration was pretty consistent. I mean, I would go for weeks and weeks and be, uh, you know, work quite hard on it the writing and and uh, but then I would take a couple of weeks off I would I would take several weeks and I'd work work pretty hard on it and then it would sit a little while and then I would go back to it and then especially when I made the transition from the 10 to 15,000 word short story to more of a novelette or novel you know 50,000 words and, and beyond you know I would take bigger breaks but but then I would go through several weeks where I was just intense on it especially in the evenings and weekends because I mean I was still had a full-time job and you know I was doing that so most of my work was in the evenings and, and weekends but it wasn't very planned I would say it was I would just do it when I had time to to get get to it. Are you big on outlining is that something that as you're looking at okay I'm going to write X amount of chapters, or I'm going to write, you know, this chapter, I need to tackle these story beats. Um, and I'm going to do it within this. No, no. I mean, as a matter of fact, and, and I'm normally a fairly organized person, you know, in drawing outlines, but yeah. when it came to, when it came to this, it, there was a fair amount of inspiration. Now, I will say, looking back, I would draft very rough outlines of, of kind of an arc of where I wanted things to go. It, but it would be very rough. And even then it would just be sort of sections at a time. It wouldn't, it wasn't, I never at, at any moment sort of outlined the entire book. I mean, I, I outlined sort of sections at a time as I, as I thought about where I wanted the, the character to go mm-hmm. and the story I wanted to tell. How many, and this probably requires uh, some definitional uh, terms here. How many drafts uh, would you say you wrote along the way? And then how do you define a draft? Oh gosh, right. drafting is tough because uh, yeah, a draft d- defining a draft in itself was tough because there was a lot of times when I thought uh, I thought I was done, but I wasn't, and and I would I would have a, a so called draft I'd print it out and the whole thing, and and then I would end up you know it wasn't done yet, and I would work more on it. I, I, gosh, there I must have a hundred. I mean. I don't want to exaggerate, but probably through the whole process, there there must be, uh, you know, between 50 and 100, you know, what I would have called drafts, drafts where it was done to the point where I didn't look at it, at least for a few days before I would go back at it and review it and, uh, you know, and then and then rework it again. And uh, there was like, that in itself. It's interesting that that you asked that because that in itself was a, was a real learning experience. I think in the future, in my future writing, I probably won't have so many drafts. I mean, I think I, I've learned that even when I think I'm done, I'm I'm probably not really done. And and I was that way professionally too. When I drafted a patent application, I would never, I would just never be done to the to the paralegal would pride out of my hands and file it at the patent <laughs> office. I mean, I wanted to keep working on it until the last minute. And, and that's kind of how I was with this. Uh, I, I worked on it really up until, you know, I let it go and published it. That's funny. So 
this story in particular takes place about 100 years into the future. Um, we kind of follow a patent attorney, Jenny Sue, and always correct any of my uh, mispronunciations along the way here. Sure. I'm more of a, I, I learn by reading much less. Uh, so there's a number of times when I've announced a word to someone, they're like, what did you just say? Like, <laughs> yeah, Belarus, right? No, it's Belarus. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, this takes place about 100 years into the future. And I really like, I mean, this is a very patient story because you, right off the bat, you're not starting off with like a mad scientist. Instead, it's a, uh, a slow entrance discovering yeah. this world through the eyes of a patent attorney, um, which, you know, given your background, uh, I really got strong vibes of like Michael Crichton or, you know, Grisham uh, using your professional knowledge career path to put us inside a character and into a story. And so I'm curious, like when it, this story in particular, what inspired it? I know, you, you know, starting that's really informative that it was something that started with a short story contest prior, you know, w yeah. Where, where would you say this kind of originated from? So, um, a, a couple of inspirations, partly just the thought that, you know, what would it be like as a patent attorney to be patenting world changing technology, you know, in the future. But I think more deeply than that, though, I think w when I started to, to, to configure the story and, and create it, probably like a lot of authors, there's probably some minor, at least minor autobiographical elements. I mean, I wanted to write a story about a person who was a, a regular person who had faults and who had her own backstory and had issues in her life that if anything, maybe hindered her, her, her profession or hindered her, her life, you know, moving forward and, and, and had her quirks and, you know, feeling lonely or sad or anxious and, you know, build someone who had just these real life kind of qualities, but at the same time was just tr trudging through life. And, uh, and I, I wanted to build a character like that, but I wanted to be in a, in a framework of sort of world altering things. And uh, one early theme that I, I remember that, that I started off with is that to me, the story sort of started off as a little bit of a cautionary tale mm -hmm. in, in so far as the, uh, in the future, I think space, I, I picture, I, I sort of imagine space travel and, and technological development being a little more unsupervised, <laughs> as it were, and, and more of a, a, a Wild West sort of situation uh, in the world, at least, at least when it comes to the United States, and, and a cautionary tale in a sense of that, at least I feel like, especially being a child of uh, the Johnson Space Center here in, in Houston and um, my wife even working for the for the Johnson Space Center um, and very influenced by it, uh, feeling like the, that when it comes to these types of big technological advances, governments, responsible governments probably should take a hand in some of these things and be involved and and exploring what can happen when governments just sort of <clears throat> give up interest in these things and especially the, the U.S. government and mm -hmm. other governments may, may uh, you know, take up the mantle of space travel and, and, and even, even move past, you know, where the United States is technologically and what that would look like. And is that good? Is it bad? Um, for instance, in, in the story, I focus a lot on India and especially China, yeah. uh, China uh, and 
and uh, I know quite a lot about China because even in my work, you know, I see, uh, you know, technological advancement there and, uh, and observe it and um, um, sort of our, the competition of American companies in the United States with uh, technological advancement there and in other countries and just just exploring whether the the, the consequences of that what, uh, the consequences of the United States perhaps not pursuing these things as, as vigorously as we did at one time and and uh, just this morning I don't know if you saw it but of course Bezos just went 62 miles up and I, I just saw that and and he's a private citizen and in fact the the commentator even made a comment that there's a few things that they're doing that you know, they're not telling NASA exactly. Uh, uh-huh. I mean, of course, of course, they're governed, you know, they're governed by uh, U.S. law. I mean, because they're a U.S. company, they can't, and especially these technological type of things, you know, any company operating in the United States, they can't just do anything with, with sensitive technology. But at the same time, I could envision a point where the U.S. government just sort of gives, almost gives up on it or loosens up on it. And, and it, who knows where the technology goes and it, it could, it could end up in hands that aren't so responsible that, uh, or, or maybe they're responsible, but it's nonetheless, uh, it puts, it puts us behind, puts us America or Americans maybe behind. And, um, and so that, that was a lot of what I kind of wanted to explore in the story early on. Nice. I like that a lot. I wonder one of the things, uh, and I was joking with song about this song is your daughter, of course. Um, yes. And reading it, I was like, I, right or wrong, I keep imagining Song as as the part of uh, Jenny. And so I'm curious, uh, were there any influences where you built Jenny around? Or was that just, you know, kind of inserting yourself into the story? Probably me, almost. Is that there are some mm. elements of Jenny are probably more autobiographical. Me, mm. experiences growing up and, and uh, sort of attitudes maybe that I've had when I was younger, when I was her age in my twenties, 20, 25, 26 years old. And it was probably more autobiographical in some ways. So for me, this, and this gets very, I don't know, uh, writery, I guess, but I'm big on naming conventions. I feel like this is one of the few areas a screenwriter, especially can start to have some kind of, uh, subtextual elements and, uh, start to experiment a little bit. And I felt I assume there were some naming conventions that you used to insert uh, symbology, some symbolism like John Mars seemed to be about it. Uh, Jenny's connection to the sea. Mar being, I think, uh, was it Latin for the, the sea? And there even seemed to be some alliteration between John and Jenny. And so I'm curious, uh, Kepler seemed to, to, you know, be yeah. a, a pretty, you know, on the nose, uh, science reference. And so I'm yeah. curious, how do you take your, your naming conventions and, uh, were there a lot of these kind of subtextual elements that you were trying to insert along the way? I think there were some subtextual elements. Some of it though, was really how it sounded, uh, um, um j- just how, how the, the, the alliteration of, of some of the names and how they sound and, and look really. And, and, you know, one of the names I struggled with the most was Jenny. All the, her first name I, I, I stuck, stuck with from day one, but her, her family name, I, I changed around a little bit. I struggled with uh, because um, for political reasons, uh, her, her name is uh, of, in general Chinese, but, but Shu H S U, which I kind of started out with, 
is more Taiwanese. It's more of a Taiwanese spelling oh. of a Chi of a Chinese name. And uh, for a while, I even worried. I'm like, maybe I should pick something more neutral, a more neutral Chinese as opposed to something purely mainland, something that it's mainland Chinese versus Taiwanese Chinese. But and I went back and forth with that. But then I realized, Kevin, you're just overthinking this. And I, <laughs> I like I like the Jenny Shu. I like the way it sounded. I, I really just like the way her name sounded. And mm. um, and so I stuck. I went back with that and stuck with it. But I struggled with it, you know. But there there weren't. And I and I went round and about with with several people's names. I, I went around and about with uh, uh, Vinculus Warren's name. His name I went back around quite a bit with, and, and in fact, his name I changed most dramatically, partly because, and when I, the name I started out with, it turns out to be a very very common name. I mean, we have satellites named after him now, and I thought, you know, I. I, it, it's a little overused. I, the name I picked for him originally was a little overused, and so I went back and and into my past. And and let me say uh, one one thing about that about uh, Vinculus Warren, and for that matter, Jenny Shu, is that the world I created I, I feel like is is fairly diverse, but it's not in an artificial sense. I mean, in, in the world that I lived in, especially when I when I uh, started graduate school and, and and especially once I started professionally as a scientist and, and I worked as a scientist several years I mean I lit that was the world I lived in I remember clearly when I was postdocing one to one uh, at Texas Southwest Medical Center in Dallas and I sat at a table we had there was a big meeting going on and I was with 26 people and for grins and kicks I counted you know I counted all the people and I counted the diversity there and there was literally six people at the table like me i mean u.s born you know uh anglo-saxon you know american type of people there and that was it i mean everybody else was from india china the middle east israel israeli uh european i mean there were people from all over the world and that was the world really i worked in and even as a patent attorney that was the world i, I worked in is a lot of indian folks a lot of chinese folks uh, people from the middle east middle eastern folks and I, I very much lived in that world and so so the world i create in this book of you know the indian scientist and and the 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 asian american uh patent attorney i mean it was it was i didn't have to reach far for that i mean it was the world i, I lived in professionally and so that was the world i used and and very much when you're a scientist in this country it's a very international world because in fact you see it for instance in my neighborhood we live uh very close to the johnson space center and if mm -hmm. we you know we literally have astronauts that, that live in this neighborhood and song got to go to school with astronaut kids and but also all the scientists and engineers that work at nasa that work at the the oil and gas industry for some somehow we have a very this neighborhood is very diverse in, in terms of internationally diverse and and she got to grow up with that too the high school she went to is very internationally diverse school because of i think being close to the johnson space center so anyway wow. it's the world i live in as a scientist and so and and a patent attorney and so that was kind of the world i created that if anything kind of governed my naming my nomenclature more than anything wow Putting together this kind of story where you're taking on, obviously, some pretty high-minded elements uh, and then even more so trying to take it on from the standpoint of, of, of a patent attorney who, under, 
who not only understands it, but is tasked with explaining it to people who don't understand it. I mean, that's, there's a lot going on within that. Um, And obviously you have experience firsthand with that, that idea, but I'm curious uh, from what kind of research goes into, you know, writing this um, or because it's so far into the future, you get to just have the fun of completely making things up or, or, you know, piggybacking on other things, other things that are happening right now in the science community, the techno babble aspect of it. Yeah. So, I mean, even, even the geographic changes that you, you insert into the, into the world could be rooted in something that's happening today. I mean, some things are much bigger, like unifying of Korea, uh, which I love. That was a really fun touch. Um, but it, even within the, uh, I don't know, the Russian region, there's a lot going on there. So I'm curious what kind of research, you know, went into putting together all these ideas of what the future is going to hold. Probably the most research I did was, uh, you mentioned there towards the end, the researching about, uh, the, the region, the, the, the region around the Caspian sea of, mm-hmm. of, of, uh, that whole region north of, uh, Persia and south of present-day Russia, that the whole region of, of the world there, researching the history of that region, Chechnya and uh, the, the Georgia, that, that region of the world. I, I didn't know much about that region of the world before, but some of it is, though, I, I chose that re- to focus on that region of the world in part because I'm projecting uh, from current events. and But likewise, I, I focus a lot on Ch- India and China because I'm focusing on current events. I mean, I, I do see them as, as, as rising technological powers in the world and um, so many, so much science and engineering going on in those two countries. And I piggyback a lot on that. And, and that was... Um, that that was kind of a, a starting point, though. But but that was where I did a lot of research. Was was with that was mm. sort of the that region of the world. Um, I didn't have to do. I, I I'm pretty knowledgeable in astronomy. I'm very much self taught in that. I, I majored in chemistry in school, but I, I very much self taught myself in astronomy, and and it's been sort of a hobby. I mean, astronomy is kind of a hobby of mine, and. And then, likewise, being so far in the future, some things I just fanciful just thought of, but but still a projection. Some things, though, are more a serious projection. The the uh, the state of intellectual property and patent law. I mean, for instance, the whole concept of China filing uh, actions in an in an international court of law. I mean, we already do have rudimentary international uh, courts of law for these types of things, and I, I project that in the future it's going to be stronger. And I project the way, the way if China proceeds the way they're going, <laughs> I mean, right now the stereotype is that China steals intellectual property, mm-hmm. but in the future, I think it's going to almost flip on its head. I think they're going to, they're going to be very strong technologically. And there's even some evidence of that currently, I think in the intellectual property community, they very much want to take charge of, of their own uh, patent world in China. And I think, uh, um, extraterritorially, and, and I, I could foresee a future where not only will they, they not be stealing, but they'll they'll want everyone. I mean, they'll they'll be enforcing their own intellectual property, even to the detriment maybe of everyone else. I mean, everyone else then will be like, well, hey, you know, we want to do this, and you can't stop us from doing this and practicing this technology or that technology, and 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 that's kind of how technology goes, especially in, in IP. There's a lot of overlap and 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 
people filing patents and then having to cross license technology. And I was exploring some of that, but I think it, my thought is that in the future, that some of that may flip on its head. I mean, right now the United States is very much dominant and um, generating intellectual property and, and advancement of technology, but those that could change, which goes back to sort of my, my feelings of a kind of a, a, a warning uh, the the book being a little bit of a warning that that if if we fall if we let that thing fall to the wayside if we let technology kind of become less important uh, the rest of the world's not necessarily going to think it's less important they'll think it they'll you know we'll yeah. we'll end up being we'll fall behind I think and um, so absolutely um, for being a century into the future I really loved how kind of grounded and a fantastical everything really was. I mean, there's elements of progress for sure. The the idea of androids and um, their place in our lives and uh, even some of the inhibitions that, you know, are placed on them and uh, as well as like the neural implants and, you know, some of the limiting factors with that and even some of the social stigma around it, their usage. Uh, you know, these are really fun, interesting, but also subtle concepts and from the standpoint that we're, we're not beaming each other or, you know, across the, across yeah. the country. Uh, and so uh, where, yeah, where do you see, you know, the state of, is that more grounded for, because that's where you just think everything happens a lot more slowly than we anticipate? Yes. Or is it, yeah. I think it's that my experience over, over the years looking at this sort of thing is that science fiction is fantastic. I mean, Gene Roddenberry essentially invented, you know, this, yeah. really but uh but science fiction writers are usually way well ahead of where we end up really being in reality i mean arthur c clark for instance i mean he has these great uh space stations orbiting the earth and that's great and i think we'll get there one day but we weren't there in 2001 and we're still not in 2020 and i think i think in reality we're always a little behind where our minds are and so I tried to ground the story really in where it should be. And it's funny, you see the one of my editors, going back to Sally Artesaros, the, the second big editor, she even said herself, I struggled a little bit with what year I wanted this to be. And I started to make it around really the 2050s or so. And she said, Kevin, I can't even get people to fix a pothole in the street in my front and in and, and my house. So I think put she encouraged me to put it way in the future. I mean, she she or her feeling what and she was is not even a science or, or science fiction type of, of person, but her her feeling even was that we're we're way off from any of this. So put it put it way in the future, you know. And uh, and and I agreed with with that suggestion. Actually, that was one suggestion I agreed with of hers. <laughs> How, what do you what do you think in her? stellar travel goes from here are you i don't know uh, uh bullish on that idea do you think you know hey we're probably going to make some pretty amazing strides i am i i mean i am i think it's going to go uh I, I think there will be progress i think it'll be slow and it, it'll take time i mean uh but i think in the next 100 200 years i think that that humans will achieve uh, some slow interstellar travel and then more rapid interstellar travel. You know, I've, another thing I was heavily influenced by when I was young, I mentioned that astronomy is a hobby, but I grew up with the cosmos by Carl Sagan. And 
uh, and watch that on PBS when it was a series and have the book. And he talks some about the future of, of uh, interstellar mm-hmm. travel. And, and he didn't even talk as far as I did. I mean, his, his, his vision was, you know, fairly slow interstellar travel ships that would take, you know, a generation uh, for, to get from one star to another. And I, I definitely see that happening. The, I think the, I think technologically we're, we're definitely going to get there. The biggest hindrance is going to be money. I mean, these things are, are terribly expensive. I think that's going to be the biggest hindrance, even just getting to Mars. I mean, I, my wife is all excited about getting to Mars, for instance, and Elon Musk, whenever he talks about it. And I say, it's great, but it is just so expensive. It's so it's going to be so expensive to do that kind of thing. I think we're there already technologically, for instance, to go to Mars. But just the money, the money it's going to take and, and the fact that it's going to be almost a suicide mission. I mean, probably someone will certainly die. I mean, it's so dangerous. And, and it, those, those things, safety and money are, are just huge hindrances to further interstellar travel. And it's just going to take time to overcome that, realistically speaking. Even technologically, if we develop things, the safety and money are just always going to be a big hindrance. Hmm. So in terms of where you're at, you know, writing wise, uh, are there any plans for a sequel or other books? Um, or is this something you just had to do once and now you're done? Uh, where do you, where are you going from here? I would like to write, uh, other books. I would like to write a sequel to this. And, uh, that, that is one thing I'm planning now. And I think in the future, going back to your idea of outlines that probably Mm -hmm. now that I've been through this process once, I probably will utilize fewer drafts, more outlines, you know, in in, in my writing. I, I also have other, frankly, some of the other short stories that I wrote, they're completely non-science fiction related, other other stories that I've written that that I want to expand on. In fact, I've come closer really to, to beginning expanding one other particular short story I had uh, that that just a general nonfiction about an attorney. Um, that, that I may expand. And in that instance, it, it was also somewhat like this story in that I was exploring a person's personal experience. It was really more of a character-driven kind of story. And in this case, this, this person is struggling with, with anxiety and uh, what to do with their life. And, and, uh, and, and then using being an attorney as kind of a backdrop, just like in this case, Jenny, you know, she's struggling with some things, but her, her, her interactions with this brilliant scientist, Dr. Vinkula Swarn is kind of the backdrop. And if she gets kind of carried into it, she doesn't even want it, but, but it just, it happens. And she, and she overcomes struggles and, and uh, as just a regular person would. Yeah, no, I love the progression just not only between uh, her and her relationship with him, but I love the progression throughout the novel because it felt so real to life in this, in the sense that relationships come and go, you friendships come and go as you're progressing through life and through even your career, you know, where you're spending your time ultimately uh, often dictates who you become close with just because geography is always going to be a, a, a hindrance to, you know, maintaining relationships here and there, even when technology has grown the way it has. Uh, and so I just really appreciated that, Hey, where we start, oh, here's someone and they grow apart and that's okay. And their yeah. relationship evolves and changes. And uh, so I, I 
really appreciated just the pacing and some of the the tonal shifts throughout the novel to kind of reflect where she is on her on her path for sure yeah i appreciate that yeah um any advice for other aspiring writers is there anything looking back where you're like oh i wish or this would have been better or yeah my my first of all and in fact in talking to you some of it kind of came up but i would say as advice don't wait don't wait till you're organized i mean mm. and, and, you know and and don't wait till you think you know what you're doing i mean i didn't know what i was doing initially i just you just dive in and start writing and i did that as a kid i i mean i didn't know even I, mean, I didn't know how to write a story but i just wrote and that is my biggest advice is just write but then ask for help from somebody who who does know what they're doing and just learn it's an iterative process it's really it really is iterative that that is the first big advice is just jump in and and just write and it's okay to you know do use whatever method you need to if you if you if you like to compose with a glass of wine like i said and edit with a pot of coffee the <laughs> next day and and do it or or however you do it the the other piece of advice is is to definitely do get help though get outside help someone even someone that's not a family member is especially helpful somebody who can give you some objective advice and 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 give you sort of the the harsh criticism or, or even positive feedback where you could believe them uh that that's that's very important and uh um the, those are the two big and and the third piece of advice is simply to uh don't try to write for anyone else uh and really as my daughter said i i know you you talked many times about the pacing of this story that was one of my one of my concerns about this story i have to say in terms of it, are people going to like it? I, I realized that this story is slow, probably. In fact, when mm-hmm. I when I first wrote it, it was so slow. <laughs> In fact, my daughter, when she read it, and it was just kind of an early, kind of a long, short story, she was like, Dad, you know, most stories, they start off kind of slow, but then they rise and they have a climax. And then, you know, I don't even think my story initially had a climax. It was almost no, there was no action at all. And, <laughs> and I had to, I had to learn to build something into it to sort of pull the reader in, but, but I, I didn't want endless loops of peril and it's just not my thing. And so I didn't put it in there. And I, I, I think it's important to just tell the story you want to tell and tell it the way you want to tell it. And if you think, don't worry that other people aren't going to think it's exciting enough or, or whatever it's, you know, you, you tell the story that you want to tell. Hmm. Any other writers right now that you're excited about, uh, whether it's Ted Chang or Chishin Lu, I don't know how to pronounce any of their names, unfortunately, or someone else. Is there any other great sci-fi coming out right now that uh, keeps you excited? Um, I'm still, these days, I, I I haven't really read a lot of science fiction. Ted, you mentioned Ted Chang. He was very inspirational, by the way. His writing mm-hmm. style, uh, you know, he wrote the 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 novelette that was turned into the movie Arrival, I which was very watching Arrival this morning for the umpteen time because yeah. I had just last week read Story of Your Life for the first time, and I was like, yeah. oh my god, this changes everything. I really liked his writing style, and and uh, I was inspired by by how he wrote and. But if anything, I'm probably I'm going back. In fact, I have one of the books. What is it here? Um, and yes, I'm going back and reading. For instance, this is the Do Do Androids Dream Electric Sleep, wow. and some some of Philip K. Dick. Uh, 
going back and reading some of those novels and I'm, I'm interested in going back and reading some of that type of thing is, is, pro, is I think where my focus is now. That's so wild. Like we're about to do both Blade Runners on my podcast. Um, and so ah. the first Blade Runners where I'm going to give you a shout out and link all my, all my, my tens of listeners to, yeah. uh, to your work. <laughs> um, but nice. Yeah. And I still, I've read some Philip K. Dick, but I haven't read that one actually. Uh, that that should be on my list for well, sure. Well, this is the book that, that Blade Runner is based mm-hmm. on, the, the yeah. Do Androids Dream Electric Sheep, and um, yeah, the, the very good book. I mean, I've I've started read some of it. It's it's a great book, and uh, very in, and of course the movie was very inspirational. I, I love that movie, the, the Blade Runner. Nice. What um any final words? Anything you wanted to touch on about your novel? I tried to keep everything high level to keep people's interest. It's about you know so many things uh but also very very few things just very deep on a very few things intergalactic travel and um relationships and science and the the insights of what it means to i was really surprised and enjoyed seeing the level that attorneys get pulled into when it comes to negotiating some of these things and and working through some of these things. And so is there any, anything we haven't touched on yet that you'd love to to say about your novel? One thing that I, that I will mention, you know, when I, when I brought this novel up, in fact, it was with a group of people at work when I was still working a group of attorneys. And I, and I I mentioned sort of the the main character. It's a book about an attorney. One of the first things that one person said was, Oh, what kind of what kind of uh, superpower does she have? <laughs> and uh, I, it, I was kind of taken aback by that question. It took me a while to even formulate an answer, but then I realized to, to just say, "Well, it's not that kind of science fiction." I mean, it, you know, because obviously, uh, superpower. You know, the DC uh, Mar- Marvel comics thing is very popular right now. Mm-hmm. I, I will leave leave with by saying that my novel is not that, I, and and I didn't. I like that kind of stuff. It's great. But I, I wanted to tell a story about a person who's a real person and sh- she's a real person in the year 2100, just like we are now. And that, that we humans, uh, we, we don't, I don't think we're, we're going to change a whole lot of change for us is going to be very slow. And uh, I, I just, I think the the story still comes down to people and, and human beings and how we interact with, with technology. That's the important thing is not so much the technology, but how it affects us as humans and how it may change us, how we resist it. And, and that's what this book I tried to explore in this story. And, and I think that's, what's important. Awesome. Is there anywhere that do you have any social media or a website that we can follow along? Not right now. I, okay. I am well on, on Kindle. So on Amazon, they actually have just developed a new uh, platform called Vela, where you can publish individual sh- sort of excerpts of short story. You can publish a little bit at a time. Mm-hmm. And I'm starting to explore publishing things on, on Vela. And, and so there's that. Otherwise, really right now, just what I have on, on Amazon is, 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 uh, is where I can be followed, I think. I have an author's page there on, on Amazon. And and an and email if people have questions for me. Awesome. Yeah, I'll, I'll link that for sure in the notes then. Well, thank you so much. If everyone is looking for, you know, a uh, fresh new voice, science fiction, I feel like this is a great spiritual successor to Contact, which 
uh, I think lines up a little bit with your uh, Cosmos statement about Sagan earlier. Um, it's a very patient, personal story, intimate look at someone's life as it's impacted by technology and in so many ways. And so thank you so much for taking the time to hang out and talk with me. Well, thank you, Wes. I appreciate taking the time.